turn in God's word this evening as we continue our series on 1 Timothy to chapter 1 verse 18. Chapter 1 verse 18 and then we'll be reading through verse 4 of chapter 2. So the plan is uh, Lord willing uh, I'm going to set aside Leviticus until the new year and uh, brother Mark and I will be doing a series of messages on Uh, the coming of Christ into this world. Um, As Timothy has made mention of, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And all that that truly means to us as the people of God. And uh, so that'll be in the mornings, in the evenings, uh, Lord willing, we'll continue in the book of 1 Timothy and then pick up uh, Leviticus in the new year. Tonight we pick it up then at verse 18, uh, having uh, preached last Sunday on 18 through 20, but going back to get that context and then to get into chapter 2, because as I've told you many times, there aren't chapter breaks, okay? So this is one of those that can really cause a little bit confusion if we separate the beginning of chapter 2 from what Paul has just wrote written to Timothy. So verse 18, the breathed out word of the Lord this evening. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. First of all then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified, In every way. This is good. And it is pleasing. In the sight of God our Savior. Who desires all people. To be saved. And to come. To a knowledge. Of the truth. Let's fire the reading of God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father. It is hard to live in a world that is filled with so much evil, to see the injustices that occur, and yet to be exhorted to give thanks for those who are in authority over us. However, our ultimate allegiance is not to any elected human being, but only to you, O God, and to you, dear Jesus, our Savior, who sits on the holy throne to the one who created and runs this world. And so we pray and make intercession for those you have appointed, O Lord. We pray that you will give Pastor Bob the wisdom and clarity of words to convey this portion of your word to us and to open our hearts for us to receive your breathed out word. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. And amen. 
So Paul's still on the same theme as, as we look at this passage tonight. It starts already way back in the first part of chapter 1, that where he tells Timothy, you get back to Ephesus and you deal with those who are making a distortion of grace. For we need no other argument. We need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Timothy, you need to go back. In 18 through 20, he tells Timothy, you need to do it, Timothy, with the the urgency of going to war. This is a warfare issue that is taking place. But the interesting thing, as we looked at last Lord's Day evening, is the fact that Paul speaks about this to wage the good warfare. Not just warfare, but the good warfare. And so the question becomes, what's the good warfare? What what does it mean to conduct the good warfare? Well, first of all, we could look back and say, well, it's a spiritual warfare that Paul is speaking of. It's a spiritual battle that is going on against those who are leading and seeking to lead the church astray. Paul sees it not necessarily in the context of of the physical realm, but in the sense of the spiritual realm, as he does in so many places. And when when he writes the book of Ephesians, same group of people, okay, right? He he tells us we, we have to have this armor that we wear. But none one of those pieces is actually a physical piece of armor that we're to put on. It's a, it's a spiritual warfare. And so yes, it takes on personage. Yes, it has individuals, but it's really a spiritual battle that is happening. That's the good warfare. But how do you conduct it? Well, Paul told Timothy in the passage from last week, Verse 19, you have to be holding faith. You have to know the sword that you have been given. You you can't go into this spiritual battle thinking your your own mind is going to outwit the opponent. That your own charisma is going to be strong enough to, to overcome them. That your own popularity is going to be such an overwhelming popularity that that these false teachers are just going to go, oh, we give in, we give in, we give in. You have to know the weapon. You have to know this. You have to know what it contains. You, You have to know from Genesis to Revelation. You have to know God's truth. You have to know the faith. You you have to understand the doctrines and how they work and how they function. But you also have to have, verse 19, a good conscience. You have to have looked in the mirror and recognized there's a sinner looking back at you. You have to recognize that you too have been saved by grace and by grace alone. 
And it's not because, well, I'm on the warfare for Christ, therefore God's going to save me. No, you've been saved by grace and by grace alone. Through faith in Jesus Christ. There has to be that good conscience, that, that clarity with which you realistically see yourself in the midst of this battle as well. That your own heart is under attack by the evil one. Then Paul says, make this your top priority. That's point one. The priority that Paul gives to Timothy to engage in this good warfare that he is called to engage in. But not just Timothy. You and I as well. What is, what is that priority? Secondly, why that. Why does that become the priority? Because it really doesn't make a lot of sense. So why is it the priority? Two points. The priority and the purpose. Notice how Paul then begins chapter 2. First of all, not maybe later, not some other time, not after you've done some other things, But Paul is coming to Timothy as as that commander, as that general. And he's saying to young Timothy, now you go back to Ephesus and you engage in this good warfare. And as you do it, this is the first thing, soldier, you need to do. We've we've all probably seen enough war movies that we know at some point in in most of these movies, the general calls in his... his, uh, Minions is, is those underneath him, and, and they set forth the war plan. You go here, you go there. Take, make sure you guard your, your right flank, and make sure you guard your left flank, and, and do this, and move the tanks this way, and this way, and that way. Well, here's Paul, as the military general, saying to Timothy, here is the first thing you need to do as you go into this good warfare. This is your first duty. This is your first responsibility. This is what is to be primary. It's like he's received a telegram, right, on the front. He opens the telegram and it's from the general and the general says, this is what you must do. And as a soldier, you don't question You don't second guess. Well, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, speaking through the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Paul, who is now directing Timothy to engage in this good warfare, says to him, this is what you do first. Well, what is it? I'll bet Timothy has to go back to Ephesus, find a stick, and just beat these guys up. Drive them out of the church. No, that's not what he's told to do. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. 
there's been a lot of paper written upon trying to figure out what are supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings? Were those four different kinds of prayers that, that are supposed to be offered? Well, that seems odd because he uses the word prayer. What are you to do, first of all, Timothy? You're to pray. But Timothy, when you pray, you, you have to have the right attitude. See, each one of these words that Paul uses here, I urge supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving, can be traced back to an attitude that one has if one prays. The attitude of need. Attitude of devotion. The attitude of relying solely Upon the Lord, an intercession, an attitude of thanksgiving. Timothy, what I want you to do is I want you to spend several hours, before you deal with these guys back there in Ephesus, I want you to spend several hours and just pray that God rips their hearts right out. That God tears their tongues out of their mouths. No, Timothy... What I want you to do is I want you to pray. But I want you to pray with an attitude in which you recognize their need of Christ. In which you recognize their necessity to be devoted to Christ. In which you recognize, Timothy, your dependence upon me and in which, Timothy, you give thanks in all circumstances. Not really what we'd expect when Paul says go back and deal with these guys. Oh, this isn't mean that that Paul's some softy. Look at the previous verses. When he deals with Hymenaeus and Alexander, I've handed them over to Satan, so they learn not to blaspheme. Paul's not wimpy about this, but he is saying, look, before you do that kind of thing, before you get to that point, you need to be, first of all, somebody who is praying. And you need to be praying with the right attitude. You need to be praying with the might right mindset. You need to be praying that these people come to know Christ. You need to be praying evangelistically. That's part of the warfare. That's how we proceed forward. We pray. We become prayer warriors. I know some in our society today say, no, 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 we're way past that. We got to do other things. The word of the Lord stands firm, first of all. We need to be praying. 
We need to be praying as individuals. We need to be praying as families. We need to be praying as a congregation. We need to be praying as the church of Jesus Christ. Politics isn't going to solve this. Laws aren't going to solve this. What did the psalmist say in 102? Lord, you heed the petitions of the humble. And you build up Zion. This is the oft-to-forgotten weapon of warfare by the church of Jesus Christ. I'll confess it, I don't pray enough. And I certainly don't pray enough for the enemies of the cross. I certainly don't pray enough for their repentance and for their conversion. Not out of anger, not out of meanness, but out of a desire that they would truly come to know Christ. The greatness of grace. Samuel Miller, an old Princeton theologian, wrote the following. I don't usually quote things, and I'm going to do it twice tonight. So, But I thought these were noteworthy. A good public prayer ought always to include a strongly marked reference to the spread of the gospel and earnest petitions for the success of the means employed by the church for that purpose. As it forms a large part of the duty of the church to spread the knowledge of the way of salvation to all around her and to send it to the utmost of her power, to all within her reach who are destitute of it. So she ought never to assemble without recognizing this obligation and fervently praying for grace and strength to fulfill it. How much do we employ That which God tells us. That which the king of kings tells us. We ought to be doing first. Before anything else. This is to be first. And then as a topper to it all. Holy Spirit guides Paul to add be made for all people. Be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead peaceful and a quiet life godly and dignified in every way. What does that mean to pray for all people? How many people are on the planet right now? 6,000? 6 billion? I don't know. 
know them all. How can I pray for them all? Because all here doesn't mean every single individual by name or by person. All means every kind of person. Don't think that, that somehow or another there are, there's some group of people who are somehow or another unable to be saved by grace. Don't think that, that somehow or another there are some who, who simply will never come to a true understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Don't ever think that way. Why? Because I'm to pray for all people. Every kind of person, every type of individual, I am to be praying for with that attitude of humility, that humble prayer of Psalm 102, the prayer of supplication, of intercession, and thanksgiving, and that I do it first of all, not lastly. Not after I come home. Not after I've taken my stick and beaten a whole bunch of people and then come home and say, Lord, please bless the beating I just gave somebody. Use it, Father, in their hearts to bring them to Christ. And I pray, first of all, for all people. Then Paul says, start with the king. What? Start with the king and those in authority? Yes, start with them. Do you see how how this is so revolutionary? A Jew would never think of praying for a pagan king. And yet that is exactly what Paul is saying. John Kelvin, in writing about this, wrote the following. When Calvin surveyed the rulers of the time that Paul wrote this, he concluded that they were all enemies of the gospel. There is not one king that we can look at at this time and say, well, that's the good king Paul wanted him to pray for. Yep, that one good guy over there, they're all evil. In fact, at this point in time, Calvin goes on to say, they are all persecutors of the poor Christians, murderers and wicked men. Calvin's conclusion, nevertheless, the Bible commands intercession with thanksgiving for kings and all who are in high positions. Continuing to read, the early church took this responsibility seriously. Consider how Clement of Rome prayed for the rulers and governors of the earth in the early 2nd century. His prayer, grant to them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, stability, that they may blamelessly administer the government that you have given them. Lord, direct their plans according to what is good and pleasing in your sight so that by devoutly administering in peace and gentleness the authority which you have given to them, they may experience your mercy. This is what Jeremiah told 
even those who are going to be taken off to Babylon. Pray for the peace of Babylon. First of all, first of all, maybe the question the church needs to look at itself and ask itself in the mirror as far as even each one of us as Christians, how many of us have seriously been praying in this way? One of the other writers says, take a look at the world you live in. What does it look like? What are your leaders doing? What is your government like? And then ask yourself, and how are you praying? And what are you praying for? Oh, we oftentimes, don't we? I stand guilty as well. We oftentimes pray, oh Lord, change the decisions, change their policies. How about, Lord, change their heart. May they come to know Christ. May a man who is forgetting most of what he does, Lord, may he before he dies come to know Christ. May he come to know the Christ that he has turned his back on, that he has rejected. Lord, in mercy, turn his heart. How many times have you prayed it? many times did you pray that for our governor, our attorney general? First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in positions. Not limited, you see. Not limited by wealth. Not limited by their position, not limited by their education, not limited by the nation they are a part of, not limited by their race, not limited by the color of their skin, not limited by the language that is their native tongue, not limited by their background and the crimes or sins they have might have committed in the past, not limited by their gender, but that we pray for all kinds of people. they might come to know Christ. What an amazing warfare plan. And you wonder, down through the history of the church, how seriously did the church take this? Or has prayer always been on the back burner? The King of kings and the Lord of lords wants us on our knees before him. If you want the Lord to move, sometimes you need to stop moving and get on your knees.
and say, Lord, hear this humble petition. Why? Why that? Why, why would that be the tactic? I mean, I can think of all what I would think. Might be better ways to deal with it. Oh, but I have an answer. Because verse 3 says, this is good. That's the good thing. And remember, when the Bible uses terms like good, you have to go back to Genesis 1. And God saw that it was good. What does it mean that he saw that it was good? It means it's the right thing. It is fitting. It's the way things should be. It is the correct way. It is the morally pure way to move forward. This is a good thing. This is, this is God saying. It's a good thing. That you're praying. That you're interceding. That your supplications and thanksgivings. It's a good thing. I applaud it. There's a lot of things that God doesn't applaud. Taking vengeance on our own. God doesn't applaud that. God doesn't applaud when bitterness and rage and anger come spewing out of our mouth. God doesn't applaud that. But God says it's good. It's a good thing. When in this good warfare, you pray. That's first. Oh, that would mean there's probably a second and third to come. But I only have so much time on Sundays. But this is the first. It's good. But notice he also goes on with it. It's not, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. It's a pleasing thing. To a Jewish person like Paul, that that word pleasing would take him back somewhere, wouldn't it? It would take him back to that tabernacle and to the temple where they have that altar of incense and and they put that incense upon the altar, the, the correct combination of various things that goes into that incense and then that incense goes on the altar and the altar and the smoke of that incense rises and we read and it was pleasing to the Lord and scripture keeps going back to that imagery of the fact of that smoke rising is the picture of the prayers of God's people being pleasing The accepting of prayers that that come before the Father in the name of the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The name of Jesus. The Christ. God finds it a pleasing thing. 
not about you, but whenever I read in the Bible that God's pleased, it seems like God's blessings flow. That when God is not pleased, I don't particularly like the outcomes I read about. But you see, God is calling us forth here in this passage to pray. Because he finds it pleasing when his people, who are called by his name, pray. And it's satisfying. Look at the next verse. Who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Same understanding. He desires all people. Every kind of person. One would imagine then that at some point in time, if the church does its work and does its work correctly and engages in this good warfare in the way that God intends for us to engage, sometime, sometime, you would think there would, there's probably going to be a gathering somewhere. Maybe in a, in a really holy place. Maybe like even in the presence of God and in that gathering, we're going to find all sorts of people. We're going to find every sort of person there is. We're going to find people from all sorts of nations. We're going to find people who speak all sorts of different languages, who are from all sorts of different tribes, who hold to all sorts of different backgrounds, that there before the throne of God, his name would be honored and glorified and praised. You, you would think that, that if the church did its work, that would happen someday. Because God desires and he's satisfied. Well, here's the good news, folks. God will be satisfied. Because he tells us that day is coming. Turn with me in closing to the book of Revelation chapter 7. This wonderful vision that John is given. Chapter 7, verse 9. I'll only make one comment as I read it, but the rest speaks for itself. The point being, when the church does that which God commands to be first, God is satisfied. It happens. People from all sorts of places come to know Christ. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Here's the comment. The great tribulation is life. It's just life. It's not some great event coming. It's life. This is the great tribulation. Life itself. With sin, with sickness, with death. This is the great tribulation. Who are these standing before the throne? Those who have come out of the great tribulation. God be praised, you and I. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God to serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They will hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to be a part of a generation of the church of Jesus Christ that takes that which is first to be first. Our hope is not in man or the things of this world. Our hope is in the Lord God of Israel. First of all, pray. Pray. Pray as a person, individually. Begin to pray as Paul is urging Timothy to pray. As families, we need to pray. As the church, we need to pray. to be a part of a church that gathers people from every walk of life and someday before his glorious throne there we are there we are singing forever reigns and he rules for he is the Lord God omnipotent. Amen. Amen.